You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good morning, everyone. How cute was that video? My gosh, so good. Um, If you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Um, today we're uh, going to do a, a couple weeks on uh, Advent. I know, like I announced a couple of weeks ago, um, Advent started uh, two weeks ago. It's the third week of Advent. But uh, we finished the book of 1 Corinthians last week, and so we're going to be in Matthew uh, this morning. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one, raise your hand, and uh, we'll get you a physical Bible in your hand if, if you prefer that. A couple people around. Um, this Bible is also a gift to you. You can keep it. Um, you can read through the gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke. Talk uh, uh, in detail of Christmas and uh, or about the birth of Jesus. And uh, you can read that. So Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to teach on chapter 1 verses 21 through 23 today. But I'm gonna, I want to start by reading uh, in verse 18 of chapter 1 so that you get some context. Okay. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, I'll read through 25 to give you some context. Now, the video that we just watched was from Luke's perspective. Um, you, get, you get Matthew and Luke's different perspectives of, of what happened. Uh, Luke follows the Mary story, and Matthew follows the Joseph story. And so, we pick up here in verse 18. Now, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Uh, his mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after she had considered, he had considered this, an angel of the Lord, that video is the coolest depiction of angel of the Lord I've ever seen. Um, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and the season that um, we're in, the season of Advent, the season of Christmas, really, God, where we get to celebrate uh, the coming of the Lord, the coming of Christ, the Savior of the world. And I know that There's all these different emotions that come up during this holiday. I know we have all this pressure to get into the holiday spirit, the Christmas spirit. Um, But I pray that we would all just be able to, myself included, Lord, this morning relax. And just really hear from you. Really just hear, God, what, what is this about? What is Christmas about? What is Advent about? What is the coming of Christ all about? Would you speak to us? Give us faith. If we don't have faith, um, there's this part in the Gospels, Lord, where the faith of a friend was enough. 
And uh, I pray if we don't have faith, maybe the, those around us would have faith. Sometimes we just limp into Sunday mornings without any faith, almost shut off to the, to the world, even to our own emotions. So I pray, God, that you'd meet us where we're at. Um, if Christmas means anything, it means that, God, you meet us where we're at. And so we thank you for the promise of Christmas. Anoint me as I teach these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you notice at the end of verse 23 in Matthew, in your Bible, there's a footnote. And last week I taught you a little bit about footnotes. You should know about footnotes. I mean, you've all, most of you went to school or university. Um, mine's a little G. If you follow it down, it says what? Isaiah 714. Matthew, the writer of this book, was Jewish. And what he's saying is, in the opening section of his account, his book of the account of Jesus Christ, what Matthew is saying is Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had prophesied. Jesus is the reality to all the foreshadowing in the Old Testament. In Jesus, Matthew is writing, is all of what God has promised, and it's found its fulfillment in this baby. This is what this is kind of what Matthew was writing about. Matthew does this in striking ways in the opening chapters, inviting his readers to consider that this child, Jesus, born in a manger, born in, a, in, a, in, a, in an animal stall, this baby is the new Moses, the new Israel, the new Solomon, the son of David, the star out of Jacob, and most striking of all, what Matthew says is that this child is Emmanuel. This child is God with us. In your footnote, it says Isaiah 7.14, which basically says the exact same thing. Later on in Isaiah's prophecy, after chapter 7, verse 14, you come to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, and, it sa- and Isaiah prophesies this. He says, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. Notice the juxtaposition between both of those. A child is born in that this Savior would be born as a child, but he wasn't just a child, he was a son that was given by God. This was not just a son born, but a child given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and of Shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish all of this. The angel goes to Joseph in a dream and he says that you are to name this boy that Mary is pregnant with Jesus. Now the name Jesus, the name Jesus in Greek, is a translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. So Jesus is basically a Greek, the Greek form of the name, of the Hebrew name, Joshua. Ancient Hebrew names usually were abbreviated from a sentence, often proclaiming something about God. So Yahshua, Yeshua, was actually an abbreviated form of of an entire sentence. And what Joshua meant, what Yeshua meant was, may Yahweh help, or may Yahweh save, or Yahweh saves, Yahweh meaning God. This word translates, God saves. 
So, an easier way to translate this word, Jesus, is salvation. Jesus' name means salvation. You are to name this boy salvation. Now, there were a lot of people in that time named Jesus or Joshua. What Matthew is saying, though, in this is that the child to be born is the Messiah, and he's the only one to bear that name who will actually fulfill what the name means. You are to name him Jesus, but he's the first one to bear the name Jesus to actually fulfill what the name means. He's actually actually the one to bear what that name actually means, to, to, to wear it, to say he is the one who saves. So in these short three verses, verses 21 through 23, we get a glimpse into who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Who he is and what he does. First, who Jesus is. It says in verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Who is Jesus? There's a book I recommended in the spring of last year by a gentleman named Sky Jathani. It's called With, W-I-T-H, With. Um, I checked this morning. We're all out of them in the book table. I think they sold out last week. Um, so hopefully we'll have some next week. But you can get it yourself on the interwebs. Um, I know several of you have read this book. It's a very good read. If you have not read it or you're like, I'm not a reader, let me summarize it for you. Okay? So. He writes that there are four main postures we have with God. All of these have small, all these in small parts are, have truths in them, but for the most part, all of us fall under them, and they are wrong, and they are these. Life under God, life over God, life from God, life for God. He says most Christians, most people actually, when they think of God, they live life like this. They leave, either live life under God, life over God, life from God, or life for God. He says, life under God, basically this posture says this, God is this capricious deity that must be appeased. And so I do whatever I can to live life under this God to religiously relate to God. This posture basically says, I do this and you will bless me. So if I do this sort of thing in my life, then you will bless me. This person basically believes that God is this deity who must be appeased in order to get blessings and to avoid punishment. So God's up here. He's this big, angry God. And for me to live a life that's somewhat good, I have to live a life that appeases him or, or tries to keep myself out of trouble or if I do good things, then he'll bless me, that sort of life. God's up there and we're afraid of him and you do everything you can to make him happy so he'll give you good things and he will not smite you. The irony in this posture is that you are basically just controlling your world through religion by manipulating God through your morality and your good deeds. These people here tend to love control. I know no one in this church loves control. So the people that, that, that live life under God love control. They hate to think that they are just passive victims of chance. So they believe that God is all-powerful and in ultimate control. And the way they try to control that controlling God is by their good deeds and the right way of living. And they think this, if I'm good, God has to bless me. If I'm good, God has to bless me. If I do all the right things and say all, no to all the right, of the stuff I'm, I'm supposed to say no to, and yes to all the stuff I'm supposed to say yes to, then God will bless me, and he won't be angry with me. 
And then for you're trying to control God by living life under God. The second way that he says we live is life over God. This posture just steals all the best of life's principles out of Scripture. So it reads the Scripture and it takes all the principles and lives with them without any real relationship with God. I meet people like that all the time in San Francisco. If the general principles of the Bible are do unto others or pray for your enemies, or judge not, they'll just take those and live by the, those laws or those principles that govern this planet, but we don't really need God. I read the Bible for good, like just to know how to live and how to relate to people. It's still the idol of control, like life under God is, but instead of using religion to control God, you cut out God altogether and just live by the general good principles of religion. Then there's life from God. Life from God is, this is the posture that sees God as a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. They just want all God's stuff, all God's gifts, all his blessings, all the good stuff from God. This is the consumerism of God. I consume God like a product. We want spiritual satisfaction, so we find it in God. But here's the problem. God's value, then, is determined by his usefulness. His usefulness. He's valuable to me as long as he's useful to me, like with any other consumer product. If I get what I want from God, then I will continue to serve God or, or, or look to God to, to, to give, him, give me all the things I want. The key to this life from God posture is that the center of life is fulfilling my desires and avoiding any pain. That's the whole goal of the life from God posture. I want all my desires fulfilled and I don't want any pain. And there's no good in pain. Pain is to be soothed. And if God can soothe my pain, I'm in. But if God cannot soothe my pain, I'm out. What good is this God to me? But if God is like a good pill, a good drug, then I'm in. And lastly, he writes about life for God. And this one is probably the antithesis of life from God. This is the overreaction of life from God. What matters in this life is this posture is about life. It's not, life is not about God's love for them or for us, but how much we can accomplish for God. This is like a, a backlash to the life from God consumer posture. Because this group of people don't want to be seen as lazy Christians or consumer Christians. They make mission the center of their Christian life. They do everything they do for God. This posture has a lot of legs in the New Testament if you're not reading it carefully. But behind all this, the posture of life for God is the belief that your value is determined by what you achieve. I am what I achieve. If I do good things for God, then I'm valuable in God's eyes. Sky Jathani writes, when someone asks, what should I do with my life, what they, are what they really want to know is, how can I prove that I am valuable? Life under God, life over God, life from God, life for God. Now, why do I share all this in a teaching about the birth of Jesus? What will they call Jesus? And his name, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
The promise of Jesus is not life under God or life over God or life from God or life for God. It is life with God. That is the promise of Christmas. That is the promise of the birth of Christ is life with God. The scriptures start by being, by God being in perfect relationship with himself and him saying, let us make man in our image. And then God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's withness. It's nearness. It's close to them. He comes to earth to walk with them, to walk with them, to be with them. That is the promise. That, is, that was the shalom of God, was everything was in the right order when God is with them. And then at the end of the scriptures, we finally have that verse that we read last week in the context of heaven. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. See, to our knowledge, no one ever called Jesus Emmanuel. It was not the child's name in the sense that Jesus was his name. What Matthew intends for us to understand is that Emmanuel was Jesus' name in the sense that all that was involved in that name found its fulfillment in him. All that was involved in God with us was fulfilled in Jesus. In Jesus, God is with us. He has come to us. He is not far off. He is not distant and tells the world to try to find their way to him. He is not hidden in some mountain somewhere. He is not hidden only and only reveals himself to those who are worthy enough. He is not a capricious deity that you live life under. He is not an uninvolved God that you live life over. He is not a cosmic grandparent you live life from. He is not a militant general you live life for. He is Emmanuel who has come to be with us and us with him. And that's the only way Christmas makes sense. And why is Jesus Emmanuel? Why is Jesus God with us? Well, this is what Jesus does. It says in verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus or you are to name him salvation because he will save his people from their sins. He will save them from their sins. This is why Christ has drawn near to us. This is why Christ was born. This is why Christ was given to Mary. Was that he would save his people from their sin. I, please excuse me if you find it off-putting that I'm going to talk about sin during Christmas. But if you've ever watched or looked at news during Black Friday, you know sin is very much a part of Christmas. <laughs> Sin basically starts in Genesis 3, where God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The tree was in the Garden of Eden, and everyone wonders, why was the tree there? And what did the tree represent? The tree only represented complete trust in God. I have everything you need, everything you ever want. I've given you a tree of life, just don't eat from that tree. Now, what sort of tree it was, nobody knows what sort of tree it was. But what that tree represented was, do you believe me? Do you trust me? And humanity, time and time again, has eaten from that tree. Of course we don't trust you. 
And sin doesn't end until Revelation 21 where it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So there are basically four chapters in the entire Bible without sin. Four chapters with the way things are supposed to be. The best definition of sin I've ever read was by an author named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. And he says, sin is the vandalism of shalom. Sin is the peace and the shalom we had with God and the peace we had with one another vandalized. Sin is the peace we had with ourselves and the peace we had with our planet that we were given to steward being vandalized. So why is sin so offensive to God? Sin's offensive to God because sin creates something. Sin creates a thing, a reality, a weight, something that God sees, something that God cannot look upon in approval because he's absolutely holy. Another scene that we get in Isaiah happens in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called into the ministry as a prophet, it goes something like this. Isaiah writes, "In In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one cried to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the fountains and the threshold shook and the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke and i said woe is me isaiah just was undone he said for i am lost I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah sees how holy God is, he realizes how sinful he is. Sin is offensive to God because God is holy, because God is just, because God is righteous. And God just can't say you're forgiven because there's no justice there. I had a conversation with a young gentleman in London. We were there on a prayer tour, just praying for London as we were uh, replanting a church there. And this young man grew up Muslim, and we were praying in front of a church, and he just walked up, and he was exploring Christianity, and he started, started asking us questions. Like, why did Jesus die? Why couldn't God just say, you're forgiven? If God, if you're saying God has absolute power, why can't God just say, you're forgiven, and that is the end of it? And I said, where's the justice in that? Who is to pay the penalty? What kind of righteous judge would he be if he just said, you're off the hook? What if someone raped and murdered your wife and the judge just said, I'm having a good day, you're pardoned? Where is the sense of justice there? The reason why we all love the end of the, Mount of the, the Count of Monte Cristo is because there's justice. The end of that movie is justice and you feel like, yes, finally, justice. See, sin creates something. It's a wrongful deed that creates in its wake some sort of thing that has to be removed. Sin creates a reality. And sin is not just a thing or reality, but a specific and particular kind of reality. When you and I sin, something concrete happens. When you sin against another person, there's something in the room. You know it when you walk in. You can see them at a, in the middle of church and, and catch their eye across the room and something's in the room. That wasn't there before. When you've wronged someone, it creates something. You feel it. You sense it. You might even feel it in your bones. You might even feel it in your spirit. You might even feel it on your shoulders. You might start to get this like thing in your neck. Sin creates a reality. 
something concrete happens. The Bible uses this kind of language, sin as a weight. You are, a, you are burdened. You bear a weight. You're heavy laden. Cain, when he sinned in Genesis 4, he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I can't bear the weight of my sin. David in Psalm 32 says that when he didn't confess his sins, his bones wasted away and God's hand was heavy upon him. His strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. When God enacted the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, Israel was to bring two goats in the temple to Jerusalem. One was to be marked for sacrificial slaughter, the other was a scapegoat sent into the wilderness. Israel would lay hands on these animals, confess their sins, one goat would pay the penalty for their sins, and the other would carry the weight of Israel's sins away as far as the east is from the west into the wilderness known as the underworld. The goat... A goat is a beast of burden, and the animal assumed the burden of sin and was sent away. The Bible also talks about sin as stain. Your sins have stained you. They've made you unclean. Sins have made you crimson red, Isaiah says. You're a man of unclean lips, he says. The psalmist prays, give us clean hands and a pure heart. Sin creates a stain, and sin creates a debt, and this is what carries over into the New Testament. You fall into debt when you sin. You become enslaved. The wages of sin is death. So when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it says that you have been cleansed from sin. You have, the burden of sin has been lifted. The debt of sin has been paid in full. But how is this to happen? You can't pay your own debt. It's too much. The wages of sin is death. And if you did pay your own debt of sin with death, you would be dead. What good is that? But we try. We try to pay the, wage, the, the, the weight of sin, the debt of sin. We try to balance out the bad we've done with good. We think acts of virtue act as acts of credit. So it credits our accounts for wrongs done, but that's not true. You can't bear the weight of your own sin. It's too heavy, but we try. We beat ourselves up. We blame ourselves for doing the thing that we didn't want to do again and again and again, and we beat ourselves up. We can't cleanse ourselves no matter how many times you come to church, you can't cleanse yourself. No matter how far up in church leadership you climb, you can't cleanse yourself. No matter how much you give or serve, you can't cleanse yourself. And it wasn't enough for Israel to fast and pray and repent and say sorry, and it's not enough for us either because sin created something physical that rested on your shoulders. It created something that stained your hands. It created something that put you in a debt that you had to pay for to get out of. But who will pay for the sin of debt? Who will cleanse us from all wrong? Who will carry our burden? This sets up a scene and the scene for a redeemer, a savior. And he will save his people from their sins. See, what Christmas tells us is that our debt of sin was not okay with God either. Your debt of sin was not okay with God. God did not see your debt of sin and go, you know what? It's on them. They're the ones that rebelled. They're the ones that walked away from me. I provided everything for them. I created a perfect environment. I gave them shalom like they would never, ever know. And they walked away from me. That's on them. It wasn't good enough for God. God cannot sit back and watch his, the, good, the good world that he created fall apart with the people he created fall with it. Only God has the means to pay what is owed. And only God saves Commentators like to trip out on the he 
in verse 21. Matthew 121 says, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. They like to trip on this word he. What does he mean? Because we know, according to the Old Testament, it's only God who saves. So is the he God or is the he Jesus? What Matthew is saying beautifully, mysteriously, poetically, that it's both. That's the truth about Emmanuel. It's God in Christ saving us from our sins and bringing us back to God. This is the gospel. It's that child promised to the world, save his people. And what we're going to see is that the word his people expands as the gospel expands, expands as the New Testament expands, and it covers all people and all places and all tribes, tongues, and languages. The gospel is this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Because life with God is the promise of Christmas. It's life with God. The only way out of sin is through it. To face it. To deal with it. To confess it and grab Jesus' hand and allow the experience of the cross to nail your sins to that tree. This is both a process and a promise. It's a promise because once we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we have it. Once we trust Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we have it, period. It's called the gospel because it's good news. That's what gospel means, good news. All you have to do with good news is receive it. A beautiful picture of this is Mary. When the angel comes to Mary and said, you're going to be with a child and this, the child's going to save his people from their sins. And Mary said, let it be as you said. Or as a video. <laughs> Just that is it. You receive it. That's what you do with news. I have good news. Glad tidings. I have some news for you. You're going to be with a child. The Holy Spirit is going to do this. And she said, let it be. What you do with news is you receive news. The gospel is good news. You receive it. And the second you receive it, you have the forgiveness of sin, the burden of sin lifted, the debt of sin paid, the stain of sin washed. Jesus came to bring peace, shalom, to restore what was lost in the garden. And for that to happen, he had to remove our sins. This is what Christ had come to do This is all wrapped up in his name. This is all wrapped up in his title. This is all wrapped up in his mission. Christ came to save. But it's also a process. And I'll be completely honest with you here. Christianity, walking away from sins, is a process. It's a process because you might feel the same way when you leave today than when you came. Save for the weight of guilt on your back, that might be lifted from you as you receive Christ. Most times it is. You come come and you receive Christ and the weight of sin is lifted. But you might look in the mirror when you leave this place and look exactly the same. You might be tempted tomorrow just as you were tempted last night. This is why the process of following Jesus, away from old forms and habits, is a lifelong endeavor that you need a community for. And that's why Jesus says he will save his people. 
Jesus came to save a people. Later on, it says an ecclesia, a church, a called out group of people. Jesus has came to save a church, a people. And this is why you need a community to move out of sin, to move out of Egypt, to use the Old Testament language. Because with a community, you need to rip through all the layers of denial and self-deception that we clothe ourselves with. But all of this starts with an admission of need. You need Emmanuel. You need God with you. That's the promise of Christmas. That's the hope of Christmas. And what's beautiful about this, every year as the church does the rhythms of Advent, of Easter, we get to return to this simple truth again and again. This is good news to this church. And what we get to do is receive it with joy. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the promise of new life, the promise of life with you, the promise that our sins can be carried away, can be removed. And we, well, we get, we get new life. We get life in you. We get salvation. And so, God, in the only way that you know how, I pray right now that you would draw people to yourself, that you would draw a sinner away from sin and to Jesus, that you would draw those of us that are self-deceived that think that I don't need God. Draw us away from that, God. The promise that you're with us. For those that have lived a life of, in, a, in a posture that's so contradictory to the promise of Emmanuel, if we've lived our life under you or over you or for you or from you, Lord, renew that promise of salvation of life with you. That you are with us, God. So I pray you would draw near to the lonely in here this morning. Those who are spiritually dry or empty, tired or weak, poor, needy. That's the context of Christmas, God. Would you draw near to us, be with us. May we experience you. I know, God, that you promised that you would be with us. I know that you are here, but I, I ask now, God, that you would manifest your presence, that you would show us, that you would really um, just show us yourself, God. Show us that you're near. In Jesus' name, amen.